Good morning. Thank you for being here. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's been an exciting week. The title of this message is Purposes. When you do things, when you have a purpose, when your life has a purpose, or if you're just immediate moment has a purpose, you behave differently. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all your love and mercy. Thank you for daily and richly forgiving us all our sins. Thank you for daily and richly giving us our daily bread. And uh, dear God, uh, just grace us with the gift of obedience so that we may follow you. Just take up our cross and follow you. Just deny ourselves Take up our cross and follow you. In your name, Jesus, amen. When I was a student at ORU, I noticed when I was a graduate student, a seminarian, uh, many of the professors were getting uh, very alarmed. There was an interesting thing happening among the Bible students like the undergraduate Bible students and even some of the seminarians, they were renouncing, uh, not so much renouncing Pentecostalism, that was kind of part of it, but it wasn't really that so much. They were leaving evangelical, charismatic, Protestant Christianity and converting to orthodoxy, like, you know, like the Orthodox Church from like the Byzantine Empire. They were converting to... uh, orthodoxy en masse, and it was just really, really, it was, very, it was alarming some of the professors, and I was kind of a junior professor, I was a TA, so I would hear about this, and it always puzzled me, and uh, I asked one guy once, because he was a really smart guy, he went on to get his PhD somewhere, super smart, had an amazing senior paper about like the Hebrew in the book, of, like the Hebrew grammar in the book of Job really smart guy, and I asked him why I was doing it, and uh, it didn't make sense to me at the time. It kind of does now, but uh, he was like, well, you know, Catholic Christianity or Protestant Christianity is all about the end game is getting your sins forgiven. It's almost mechanistically getting your sins forgiven, attaining your eternal security, and just, you know, making a decision for Christ, whereas Eastern Christianity, the they kind of took your faith in Christ for granted, and that didn't score you any cookies or any brownie points or any ticket into heaven. Uh, in Eastern Christianity, in this orthodoxy that he converted to, the end game was denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Christ. And I'm not saying that the Orthodox Church denies the importance of the forgiveness of sins or denies the role of grace. That's all very important. It's more of a major and a minor thing, not an either-or. It's more of a both-and. It's just which one did the Orthodox Church cling to? And I guess historically, I had to do some research, but historically, uh, I guess he actually had a point. Historically, the, the Byzantine Constantinian Church, the Orthodoxy Church of, you know, of Ethiopia or of Egypt or of Turkey now, Constant, Constantinople, were all about taking up your cross and following Christ. And that, was, and that was something they could not even, that was their primary thing for them. And uh, it was with that in mind that I wanted to read uh, Peter's confession here in uh, 
our gospel passage for today, Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. Can you hear me now? Oh, good. And Jesus went out, along with his disciples, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter said to him, Thou art the Christ. I think somewhere else it goes, I think in Matthew it says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. I like Matthew's version better. I like that part. Uh, and he warned them not to tell no one about them, or excuse me, he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him beside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Sorry, get thee behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. You have to get that thee in there, it's important. Uh, he summoned the mult- and he summoned the multitude of his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to, s- for whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sh- sake and the gospel's shall save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? And what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For, who, for whomever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Dear God, thank you for your word. Looks like Jesus' purposes here and Peter's purposes here were uh, miles away. And that's kind of telling. Because when you have a purpose in life, you do things on purpose. Uh, if you have a goal, a, a reason, an, an agenda, you are going to do things intentionally to reach that purpose or goal. Uh, some, go, some people want to make as much money as possible, and they do what they need to do. They go where they want, they want to go where they want to go. They want to buy what they want to buy. They want to have enough financial resources for a nice house, a comfortable car to drive, uh, a nice house in a safe area, and a comfortable retirement. So they get a job, they work hard, they don't go partying too much on the weekends in college, they sit there hitting the books while their friends were out partying, they make the grades, they get into the right programs, they get, they get the right certifications, and then they work, and they do things intentionally and logically, they plan ahead to accomplish the purpose of making enough money in their lives to purchase earthly security and wealth. Uh, some people want power. They might say they just want power to be able to control their lives, to take charge of who they are, to take responsibility for themselves to, and what they get to do and say. Some people may call that power freedom. Uh, they, you know, some people don't want personal power or freedom for themselves. They just want power over others. So they become administrators. I'm kidding. No. <laughs> that was a teacher joke. Uh, but uh, so they want to say something and have other people do things for them. Some people simply want to have that control. Those, uh, you know, they just, they want to supervise. Uh, 
you know, I feel called to be a supervisor, you know, a boss. I remember I was in China in Taiwan. I was in China teaching at a uh, international school, and we had some very, very wealthy uh, students. Or sorry, their parents were very, very wealthy. And so I asked them, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" And they were like, "A boss." I was like, "All right, well, okay, you're going to be a boss when you grow up." You know, some people want to be popular. It's not so much the money or the power or the fear in people's eyes. They just want to be liked. They want to be part of a group. They want to be included. And they want the certain prestige that comes with being part of that in crowd. And so they do things intentionally on purpose to reach that goal, to be popular and have people like them, especially in middle school. You'll see kids change their fashion sense and their tribal identity every six weeks. You know, for six weeks, they're like grunge, listening to Seattle Pearl Jam, and then six weeks later, they're gangsters, and then dressing like, you know, they're urban hood youths, even though they live in the suburb. And then six weeks later, they're like in cowboy boots and like wranglers, and you're just like, find an identity, you know, but those people just want to be liked. Uh, so I bring all this up. I, I think we're all past our middle school years here, uh, you know, but my question for you today, my question for myself today is, what is your purpose in life? What is my purpose in life? Uh, and before you answer that, let's look at this passage, uh, what's happening in this passage uh, to, to Jesus. Uh, he's on the road to Caesarea Philippi, and he asks his disciples in verse 27, who do people say that I am? And he gets answers like John the Baptist come back from the dead or one of the prophets in Elijah, very powerful figures expected to wield real power. And then he asks, who do you say I am? And Peter speaks up, answering for all of them, says, you are the Christ. And that's a wonderful answer. But he's got the wrong idea about what the Christ would do. And of course, we've all been to church for 50 years. We all know that Peter wanted Jesus to start a war and kick out the Romans and offer temporal political you know, victory. And we kind of smugly go, ah, but of course, God, Jesus' real agenda, and God's real agenda was to save people from their sins, not just an evil empire. You know? And so we kind of, we almost feel sorry for Peter, or feel like we're better than Peter, or at least I do sometimes. Like, he just didn't understand the gospel like we do. He didn't know the Bible like we do. I mean, actually, that whole Old Testament was on Peter's side, to be fair. Uh, he was perfectly biblical in expecting what he wanted, uh, if you read it in a certain way. And, uh, but no, he had the... I mean, but we forget that this Bible wasn't just written to make us feel better about Peter not understanding the gospel and to give ourselves a pat on the back and feel smug. Because, I mean, honestly, Peter was looking for the Christ, the one God was going to send, who Peter stands on God's words and believes is coming with power to make all his dreams come true. And I don't know about you, but I've heard a sermon or two where it's Jesus is going to make all your dreams come true. You know, and it's kind of funny how people who, uh, myself included, who we, uh, we acknowledge that Peter had a false understanding of the gospel or an imperfect understanding of the gospel uh, or a dangerous understanding of the gospel. And it's, I would honestly have to say it's false because he does get called Satan here, you know. But, <laughs> but, it's, but I mean, like, but if... If Peter's understanding of the gospel is false, and it is, I mean, I think we got a lot of false gospels too, you know, and they just kind of get given a free pass because we don't want to say anything. 
You know, I mean, he believes that the Christ, I mean, he's hoping that Christ will overthrow the Roman government so that they can be free, so that there will be no more oppression. But, you know, I know a lot of woke Christians advocating, you know, armed revolt to uh, save the world (laughs) or save the world from the oppressiveness of racism or structural violence. And I'm not denying racism or structural violence. I'm just asking, is an armed revolution really the path to go? Is that in the gospel? Would Jesus be on board with that? Is Jesus advocating that? Uh, But Peter seems to think he does. He believes that the Christ will show incredibly political and military power. You know, and as far as the monies and the possessions go, the health, wealth, and the prosperity, uh, I'm sure this Jesus, that this gospel, this false gospel that Peter believes in is going to give them a country where everybody will be safe, no bad neighborhoods, where they can have whatever they want and be able to do whatever they want within reason. It's going to be a wonderful place to live in with no worries, kind of like 1950s America or, you know, like a jinx, a nice jinx suburb. What's more, the disciples are going to get prime spots, prestige. People are going to look up to them. They got in on the ground floor with Jesus, and they're going to, they're going to ride his coattails all the way to the top. So they're going to get the money, the power, and the prestige. People are going to like them. They're going to be welcomed. But that's not the type of Christ Jesus had to be. Uh, and unfortunately here for Peter and, and for us, uh, he had to correct, Jesus had to correct this false understanding of what the Christ will do and what purpose he has, not just 2,000 years ago on a cross, but what purpose he has for Christians and Christianity here today. I mean, he just goes straight to the point, especially in Mark's gospel, uh, in verse 31. Uh, there's a short little word here in Greek. It's D-E-I, day. It means it is necessary. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. I mean, another translation would be, and he began to teach them that it is necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. The Son of Man must be rejected. It has to happen. It must occur. He must suffer. He must be killed. Jesus has a purpose in life. His purpose is to go to the gallows. He, he knows this has to happen. It's no surprise. And he's actually actively moving and intentionally... Who is that? Is, is, is that Dave, Dave Ramsey that tells you to set your financial goals and be intentional about how you live? Yeah, Jesus is being very intentional here. Jesus is being intentional to get himself crucified. Uh, now, the question is, why is he doing this? Uh, is it just because the Old Testament says it's going to happen? You know, uh, people... Uh, you know, people want to go back to Isaiah 53. See, it had to happen. He had to get crucified. You know, he was esteemed not. Uh, he was despised and rejected. See, Isaiah 53 says he has to be despised and rejected, so he has to be despised and rejected. He, was, he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. And by his wounds, we are made whole. Not healed, made whole. Uh, he was oppressed and afflicted, and the Lord laid our iniquity upon him. What I find fascinating about that passage is as it's originally written, it's actually people looking at the prophet himself, and it's their opinion of what happened to him. Because he was a prophet, and you know, prophets say things that people don't like. You know, it's, I mean, and you know, when prophets like Isaiah or 
Nathan or Jeremiah say things they don't like. What do kings do? They cut up their scrolls and they persecute them and they kill their families and they do these horrible things. So Isaiah, in Isaiah's talking about what happens when a prophet stands up for God and for God's word, says what he's not supposed to, and then gets destroyed by the political social order and the machine. Who's ever seen someone at work get fired and you're just like, ugh, it had to happen. It's not really fair, but I'm going to keep my head down. They needed to fire somebody and he was convenient. And you know it's wrong, but you know, you don't say anything. Am I the only one that's done that before? Yeah, keep my head. And you keep your head down because you don't want to be next. You don't want to cause trouble. You got a family to feed. You got bills to pay. And it's best to keep the machine running smoothly, no matter who was right or wrong. With all parties involved, we got to remove this guy or this woman. You know, and that's kind of the idea that Isaiah is looking at in Isaiah 53. It's not just that the Old Testament spoken, and so it must happen for Je- to, to Jesus for it to be the Christ. Okay, it's. That's not how the Bible works. That's not even how prophecy works. It's a very disturbing way to look at prophecy. Uh, God's word in the Bible is ingeniously describing. It's not just foretelling. It's more than foretelling. It's actually forthtelling. It's not just trying to tell the future. It's actually trying to describe how the world works from God's perfect, ingenious point of view. The Bible is describing, whether it's in Isaiah or anywhere else in prophecy, the Bible's desire... describing how the world works and how short-sighted, dare we say, stupid, sinful people behave in large groups, okay? The cookie only crumbles a certain way. You know, uh, I've been in schools all over the world. I've been in a lot of churches. And after a while, things just kind of seem the same, you know? Uh, When something uncool happens at an institution, sometimes we either keep our mouths shut and our heads down in the face of popular pervasive evil, and we kind of live to skulk another day, or we refuse to live a lie. Uh, We call obvious nonsense nonsense, and we get canceled, or we get crucified, or we get sent to the gulag, like, how do you say his name, Alexander Solzhenitsyn? Yeah, you know, he he spoke up. He, He would not live the lie of communism. And so they found a way to silence him. Because social, social institutions, whether they're communist, or whether they're good old boy networks, whatever they are, they always function to preserve themselves. You know, that's, they always make the decision that protects the institution or the network. Because the price for failing to cover up something and to let that network break is just bad for everybody. And Jesus knows this. Jesus knows that if he goes then and says some things people aren't going to like, that people can only respond in a certain way to live in their own false gospel. He knows Peter is stuck here. Peter's going to have to take this harsh word, get thee behind me, Satan. I mean, nobody wants to hear Jesus say that to him. He's like, get thee behind me, Satan. You you are not setting your minds on God's interests, but on man's. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. And when I read that, I get pierced in my heart because I begin to wonder, I think I've done that before. I think I've, had false expe- I think I've had false expectations of Jesus. I think I've had false understandings of Jesus. I think I've had false agendas and had a false purpose that I equated with God's plan for my life that maybe wasn't accurate. You know, And Jesus knows this. Jesus is the only one seen clearly here. He's the only one that's like six steps ahead on the, on the, on the chessboard. And this is why the second reason it has to happen this way, that Jesus must be crucified and die and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, is because God has given him a certain mission. 
He is trying to, un Jesus Christ has to unmask humanity and remind us of who we really are. Jesus knows exactly how sinful people wielding institutional power will always prioritize institutional and personal self-preservation in the name of the good, okay? Institutions do what's good for them, and people in charge of institutions do what's good for them. I think that explains Washington very, very well. You know, it's just, I mean, and unfortunately, sin, our own human sinfulness, makes us disturbingly predictable in this way. Jesus, didn't need to, Jesus and God didn't need to be all-knowing and all-powerful and all-present to know that the cookie was going to crumble this way if Jesus came and said what he was going to say. Anyone coming and saying what Jesus was saying, doing what Jesus was doing, would have gotten crucified just like Jesus. It wouldn't have mattered. Like, you know, it just wouldn't have mattered. It would have been one more of the 10,000 crucifixions that year. What made it special was when Jesus came and did these things, he was also God. And that made all the difference in the world. And this is ultimately the third reason. Jesus has to live up to his name. Jesus is, his name is Jesus. He is the one who saved. God had given him this purpose. And Jesus' cure, his mission, is to save us from ourselves. He is to save his people, us, to forgive us, to reconcile us, to bring us back to God. And we heard in the letter we read today that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we're his enemies, because we really are his enemies, our loyalty is to our institution or to our self-preservation in it. Our loyalty is to our group identity. It's just default gut-level programming, you know? And while we're like that, while we're automatically the person keeping our head down and not saying what we should, while we're not speaking up, he came into that mess knowing that he would only be killed for even getting involved. But he did that and suffered and died a horrible death because he knew that was the only way to bring us back to God and make us see who we really were. I mean, why was Jesus rejected? Why was he killed? Why did he suffer? Because he was making people angry. He was saying a lot of controversial and unpopular things that challenged the people to, in charge of the order to repent or destroy him. And they picked the second one. It was a business decision. Uh, and he did it willingly. He took the hit. He took the L. He took the loss. We always want to make it seem like it was a powerful thing, but on, in a very real way, it wasn't a win. It was a loss, at least as far as we are concerned. And I don't think any of these things happened just because the Romans were in control. They, ultimately, Jesus was in control. He was just so far ahead. He was just so above the rim. His game was just like a professional athlete playing with middle schoolers. He could just play circles around everybody involved. And they all took the bait. They weren't being controlled by him. They were just so predictable that they did exactly what they were going to do because he knew who they were. Jesus, Jesus, didn't give him, Jesus never entrusted himself to mankind, the Gospel of John says, because he knows what's in us, you know, and so, yes, Romans might have had political powers. These elders and these chief priests and these scribes that killed him of their own free will and with their full, intense desire, 
you know, if they'd known better, they wouldn't have. But they did it, and they wanted to do it, and nobody, like, took over their brains with a robot, you know, and God wasn't pulling their marionette strings. They did it because they wanted to, and they enjoyed it, and they laughed about it, and they were happy, okay? But that their control was an illusion. Pilate was as much a tool of these Jewish leaders, and guess what? The Jewish leaders were as much a tool of the crowd, and the crowd and the mob was just the tool of a satanic, almost a satanic fallen world that corrupts the way each and every one of us thinks, lives, and, and purposes to do things. And the idea, the, the almost, it must have seemed so cynical to Peter to hear Jesus say that to him. You know, hey man, I'm going to, I know I've been saying some crazy things, you know, and like he's their candidate. I, I remember when Sarah Palin would go rogue during the John McCain election, and some people, some of her minders or her handlers on McCain's staff would get so mad that she would just go rogue and say stuff. And he's like, no, we're trying to win an election here. We're trying to win. You gotta, you gotta, Sarah, you've got to be quiet. You can't be saying those things. She'd go rogue. Well, Jesus is going rogue here, and Peter just cannot handle it. So he tries to stop Jesus and saying, that will never happen to you. But Peter's not in control either. Uh, I mean, of, of their own enthusiastically stupid free will, every, all parties involved will almost fall into lockstep and choose to look out for themselves and at the expense of destroying an innocent man named Jesus Christ. And, of course, Jesus sees this coming a mile away because it happens every day. Uh, and Jesus didn't need to be God to outmaneuver humanity's predictable sinful behavior and short-sighted bad decisions. But he is, and not just was, he is. And uh, even if institutional and personal need may be in control and driving these sinners to go after Jesus, he's just playing a game above them. Jesus is the ultimate one. He's the only one with a real purpose because Jesus is the only one playing to win the game. Everyone else in here, Pilate, Peter, the scribes, the Pharisees, they're just playing not to lose. They're playing out of self-preservation and fear. Okay, Jesus is the only one here with a purpose, a true purpose and end game. He's playing to win the game. So he's going to take much more risks, throw questionable 50-50 balls, because he's the only one being aggressive and taking the game to the other side. He's not playing soft and conservative trying to milk out the clock. No, Jesus has an agenda, and his agenda is to save us from ourselves and from our sin. Before this incident... He was doing miracles left and right. He was making the deaf hear and the blind see. He was feeding thousands. He was casting demons out of young girls. You know, and right after this story, Jesus goes up and gets transfigured in dazzling white light. You know, and a little bit after that, he's going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane right away, and he's going to be betrayed, and mobs are going to come and arrest him. And Peter, <laughs> still believing the false gospel, Peter still doesn't understand the gospel, the things of God. He pulls out a sword and betrays Jesus and betrays the gospel and hacks some high priest servant's ear off. And Jesus is just like, mm. Jesus responds to him with the exact same attitude that Peter's responding to him. Like, Peter, you're going rogue, buddy. I got an election to win. <laughs> you know, I'm playing for much bigger stakes. <laughs> you know, I have a much bigger end game. And it's Jesus in control who allows himself to be arrested. It's Jesus that stands in control before Pilate. Pilate walks away from that encounter more afraid than Jesus. Well, I mean, not more afraid. Jesus wasn't afraid. <laughs> but Pilate, Pilate walked in there feeling confident and cocky. Don't you know I have the power to crucify you? And he walks out of there scared and upset. 
Oh, he still does the scumbag thing because he's a self-interest, because he's looking out for number one and he's in charge of an institution and he does the institutional choice. You know, he makes a business decision. He still does the wrong thing, but at least he feels scared and bad about it because he stood and engaged with deity, with God himself. You know, and when he's right before the Sanhedrin, uh, those religious leaders, they ask him a question. Are you the Christ, the son of God? You know, are you this, you know, that's like mixing two things together. Are you the son of David and are you the son of God? You know, and Jesus goes, I am, you know. And then, you know how people get uncomfortable when you like quote the book of Enoch in church today? Yeah, but these priests and Pharisees got uncomfortable with that too. And then Jesus is like, and from now on you will see me riding on the clouds in glory, the son of man, you know. He will see the son of man myself riding on the clouds in glory. They completely lose it. He seals his faith or fate. He provokes them to kill him. He is guilty of blasphemy in their eyes, and they condemn him to death. And yet he did this on purpose. Everything he did was for a purpose. His purpose was to unmask us for really who we are so we could take a fearless moral inventory and come before Jesus without hiding. Adam and Eve hid in the garden, and Adam and Eve have been trying to just believe our own hype and lie to ourselves. Why do we believe in false gospels? We believe in false gospels because they let us believe hype and nonsense about ourselves. But anyone who's been married will have a false gospel or two destroyed. You know, Who's ever had a spouse destroy a false gospel you believed about yourself? Believe something about yourself, a false narrative. My wife's laughing. My wife's anointed uh, position on this earth, she has decided, is to... Uh, disabuse me of any grand, delusions of grandeur I have about myself and my own talent and effectiveness. Uh, yes, thanks, honey. Thanks for keeping me grounded. But no, uh, Jesus Christ, he came to earth to unmask us and the social orders that we find our false identity in. He just came to rebuke our civilized little systems, our, 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 our little institutions for what they are. All these institutions, everything we're so proud of that we gain a sense of self from, they're just the collective works of all of our rebellious human hands together, crafted to preserve our own self-idolatrous false gospels, gospels of triumphalism and victory, gospels of communism, and what communism is a false gospel, guys. Gospels of communism for some, gospels of health and false gospels of health, wealth, and prosperity for others, gospels of redemptive violence and victories. And all of those are false gospels because they promise victory and success to us on a distorted knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve took the apple and they defined good and evil for themselves and thought they had the power and righteousness to do, and the, they could handle it. They couldn't. And I, their children, ever since, we take our little pet false gospel that redefines good and evil in our ways and we do what's right. I mean, you'll hear people explaining why it's right to go send boots on the ground in Ukraine, and you'll, according to their false gospel of good and evil, and you'll hear people explaining why it's right to not send boots on the ground in Ukraine with their false gospel of good and evil. You'll hear people with their explaining it's the right thing to take those little kids in off the mi those little migrant children, those refugee children off the borders down in our southern states, and not house them in kennels. And you'll see people saying it's right to leave them there, and we, that's just the right thing. You know? You know, and everyone has an agenda. But the funny thing about Americans and about America is whether they believe in God or not, whether we believe in God or not as Americans, we believe we are right. We believe God is on our side. 
If God did exist, he'd be on my side, the side of the woke and the communists and the socialists. Or if God did exist, he'd be on my side, you know, uh, if he exists at all. And we are very, very righteous about that. Uh, in Texas right now, there's a woman who has an eight-year-old son that she wants to perform gender reassignment surgery on and give him puberty blockers, like an eight-year-old knows his identity and anything. But this is her idea of what's right, and she is crusading against his, his father's parental rights to just stop this, you know? Uh, for some people, their knowledge of good and evil, their knowledge of defining right and wrong is a Manichaean critical race theory that just makes everything so simple about who the good guys and the bad guys are. You know, I mean, our present, if the Ukraine situation, those refugees on the border, have, those refugee children on the Mexican border have showed us anything, it's that right and wrong is a little messy sometimes, and it's hard to know right and wrong, and that's why we need God's word. And yet somehow, I think, one of the falsest gospels I've noticed among young people today, or just people today, is we just crucify and blame the past. We blame our fathers for their sins and just be delightfully ignorant of our alleged sins. We like create a picturesque false fairy tale of the past and then blame our fathers for it. We are no different than the Pharisees who murdered, whose parents murdered the prophets and then who we build it up. But Jesus comes and says, put your righteousness aside. Put you do not get thee behind me, Satan. That is God's word. I swear I've heard him say that to me a million times. You do not have in your mind and heart the things of God. You have in mind the things of men. Because Jesus only has one purpose and one agenda. And it's very clear it is the one purpose and one agenda for us. Verse 34. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You can't make a political movement out of that. You know, you really can't. You are either living every moment of your life sacrificially inconveniencing, not just, or at least sacrificing your time, energy, and money to love and help and take care of other people, whether they deserve it or not, or you're not doing that at all, and you're just have in mind a false gospel and the things of men. But Jesus makes it very clear. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel shall, shall save it. This is good news. This is the gospel. Because, honestly, I don't have the solutions for a lot of political problems. Uh, today or yesterday, and I wasn't there in 1860 or 1776 or whenever, but I know things were really complicated because they're complicated now, and we should be humble and uh, not, we just shouldn't scapegoat anybody because it's really hard to uh, scapegoat other people and to look down on other people and to oppose other people when we're too busy with our purpose on this earth, which is taking up our cross, following Jesus, and loving and serving us. And beloved, you, Jesus isn't doing this because he just wants us to suffer and earn our salvation. No, Jesus wants us to feel life. You are so alive. Dixie drives people to medical appointments all the time, and I'm sure it's exhausting, okay? But I'm also sure she, she feels alive sometimes, more alive than she would if she was, wasn't doing that, okay? Sometimes we have frustrating people 
in our lives that we have to take care of. Sometimes we are that frustrating person in your life that you have to take care of, but we feel more alive. We, we would feel less alive if those frustrating people weren't in our lives or if we weren't that frustrating person. I love you, honey. And this is what Jesus is talking about when he says, forever, for whomever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel shall save it. And so my altar call for you today is more of an invitation in the purest sense. I don't know if you're struggling with any false gospel. Okay, I'm sure you're struggling with the false gospel because I struggle with false gospels too. It's just so hard being right all the time. But if there's a false gospel you need to repent of, the altar is open for you to come down. We will pray with you. But more than that, this is, not, this is also an invitation. We're, we repent of false gospels so that we can seize and feel and experience the true life of the true gospel of taking up our cross, denying ourselves, and following Jesus to love others as ourselves. The altar is open for you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go and serve the Lord.